We've been in Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to flip over there. We're going to break through this each and every week and, and, and just talk about the different parts of this. But Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And last week, we talked about the loin belt of truth, and if you missed it, Go online, it's online, it's there to listen. We are working on getting CDs. We've had a few people request that. People who aren't quite so technological, if you will, and stuff. Uh, so we were working through that to get those together. But the loin belt of truth, and last week we talked about the crucialness of it. In fact, you even re reiterated this morning. By the way, if you're not coming on Sunday morning, she's back. So no more of my videos if you, you know, whatever. Be back there and, and whatnot. And we'll be starting Wednesday night the whole thing here in a couple of weeks with the gooder God, the John Bevere teaching. So, but anyhow, with the loin belt of truth and how important it was, what seems insignificant is actually the most significant part of the armor. Because the belt of truth, everything that we have, all the rest of the armor, hinges into it. The, the sword... The scarab that was the sword would, would hang on it. The shield would lock into it. The breastplate tucks into it. And even the helmet itself, depending on the different helmets, would lock into the breastplate, which would go down to the belt. And the central theme in there that Paul is expressing is that everything is hinged upon truth. Truth is crucial. It's a must. Today, which is no you know, coincidence whatsoever, the thing that's being denied that it exists today is truth. And by doing that, by saying you can't know truth, nobody knows truth, truth doesn't exist, is undercutting the whole message of the gospel because we claim to have the truth. And even more than that, Jesus claimed to be the truth. You see, there is truth and then there's everything else. If something doesn't line up with the truth, then it is wrong. There's not two truths. You can't have two things opposite and opposing being true. It's impossible. And we kind of understand that, and we grasp that concept kind of superficially, but it really is deep. It really goes and harnesses into something that is a much bigger issue. And so the existence of truth and what that belt does is crucial going forward. But look at verse 14. We read part of this last week. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. But here's the next part. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So this is where we're going to go today. The breastplate. It's very important to note that, first of all, righteousness is a weapon. Too often we think of the armor as simply defensive, and it is, don't get me wrong. But it is also offensive. It's used in the same context with all of the other stuff, and it's telling us exactly all these things that we need to put on. But let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7. By the word of truth... By the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Here, righteousness is plainly called armor. Pretty clear, right? We can't mistake that. There is something significant about this 
this righteousness, being armor. And this isn't just a new concept. This isn't something that just came into play. If you flip back to Isaiah 59, and you don't have to turn there. I have them all up on the screen for you, but you can if you want. Isaiah 59 and verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. Again, not a New Testament concept. It goes all the way back to Isaiah and probably even before there. There's a lot of this stuff that gets expressed in different passages, but was kind of a known thing. It was accepted. And so looking at this breastplate from just a natural standpoint, um, if, Daniel, i got a picture there, if you, uh, if you will. We looked at that picture last week. Here's another one, and this is just an, you know, an artist's excerpt of that. I like how they put the abs on it. I need to get me one of those. That would, that would be handy. But you can see from this one, this one's not quite as dramatic, but you can see the, the gorgeousness of it. I mean, the breastplate itself was the shiniest and most beautiful and glamorous piece of weaponry that the Roman soldier possessed. And it would begin at the top of his neck and it would honestly go all the way down to his knees in different ways because it tucks in to that belt. It's composed of two different pieces of metal, one that covers the front and one that covers the back. And it had these two pieces that were held together by these brass rings on top of the shoulders. So depending on how it was, there were different ones out there. Um, these are not actually the most popular of the two, but these are the most popular ones that we think of, probably because they're the most ornate. Most of the time what you would see, and I really couldn't find any pictures that gave it justice, is that this breastplate was made of these smaller pieces. They were scale-like. They almost looked like fish scales. And how they overlapped one another. And if you've ever tried to cut a fish that has hard scales, the first thing you do is you scale it. You get rid of them because they're a pain to cut through. They're not easy. And so the other thing about this that's interesting is this was the heaviest piece of weaponry. This thing weighed in excess of 40 pounds. Can you imagine walking around every day with one part of it weighing 40 pounds? Anybody who's gone on a hunting trip or some sort of excursion, they put on these big packs that weigh 40 and 50 pounds. Soldiers do it all the time and don't think anything of us. For the rest of us, we'd probably die. We wouldn't be able to do it. But it's 40 pounds here, which Goliath's breastplate, they said, weighed around 125 pounds. To give you an idea what kind of man Goliath was. He was a man's man. He was two inches shorter than Paul, actually, but very close. So Anyway, this thing was very, very elaborate. It was made of bronze or brass. Usually it was made of brass. It could have been made of either one. And what's interesting, and we talked about this a little bit last week, is that the more a soldier would walk around in it, the shinier that it would get, the more sheen that would come, because these metal pieces would rub together and kind of create this really incredible sheen. And the beauty of the breastplate was enhanced by the soldier wearing it. So now let's take a spiritual application of it. The more you wear your breastplate of righteousness, walking through life fully conscious of the righteousness that you have in Christ, the more brightly you will shine as a light in a dark world. These things are significant, and a lot of times we just overlook at them. So your righteousness here is not just a defensive weapon, but also an offensive one. And one of the reasons would be is the shininess of this would be used to their advantage because they would allow the sun to bounce off of it and hit whomever they were going against. What we need to understand is that if you were not engaged in a battle, there would be no need for any of this. We wouldn't need this armor. But Paul's words to put on the whole armor tells us that we are constantly engaged in spiritual warfare. The problem we have, it's the same problem we have with the word church is that when we think of church, we think of a time and a place, right? Church starts at. Church is over at. 
we've taken that word and changed it. This is not necessarily bad, but that's not the intention. What is the church? We are the church, right? It's the same thing here. When you talk about this armor, we think of spiritual warfare as something that we specifically go out and engage in and miss the fact that we are constantly engaged in it because the battle is on us. It's in our minds primarily. It's where it's happening. It's not like we're going out and doing battle for other people. We can do that and some intercessory type stuff. But primarily, the attacks are coming against us as individuals. And we need to understand that before we go further, further because this is the whole premise of everything. Every day we put on this armor. And I told you the Greek word there for put on was inyo. It gives the idea, it's like putting on a new suit. Put on every single piece. Don't leave anything off. And so I gave you this definition before, but if you remember, we talked about the devil. It's a description more than it is. It comes from the Greek word diabolos, and it stands for one who strikes again and again until finally he penetrates the mind with slanderous accusation. It's because the enemy desires to penetrate and immobilize a person's mind and emotions. He especially delights in finding believers who do not know that they are righteous. And this is key. They don't understand it. They don't grasp the concepts of it. Yeah, they may say it, but talk is cheap. It's not enough to just go around saying all of these things that you are. It's believing these things that it says that you are. Christ followers who don't understand why or how they are righteous, they tend to walk in condemnation. I guarantee we all know somebody, we can think of somebody like that. They're defeated easily because they feel that they don't deserve the positioning that God has given them. And at times, it honestly seems like 90% of the body of Christ is walking in some condemnations. Because He's convinced them that they will never be good enough. They can't do it. You're not good enough for God. Yeah, you may be saved, but that's it. You really shouldn't say anything to people about it, because look at all the stuff that you did. Right? You're not qualified to portray the image of God. You may be saved, you may be going to heaven, but you're not qualified for that because you don't have your act together. And it goes on and on and on. And these people walk around beat up, condemned. Why? Because they're not renewing their mind. They're not taking every thought captive, which means that they're not engaged in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is happening, and they're sitting there taking a beating. And they don't even recognize it. Paul tells us to stand, right? And we talked about this before. But this word stand here is, is not just stand up, but it's this, this almost arrogance to it, this throw back your shoulders and keep your head up high and walk around confidently. I use the word swagger, right? You walk in the room, people notice. There's something different about you. And again, while we all know believers that maybe do walk around defeated constantly, everything's always bad, nothing goes their way, they can't ever seem to get out of the mess they're in, we know people on the other end of the table who are incredibly confident in the things of God. And there's reasons for that, and we'll get there. Understanding that God has freely imparted righteousness to you, and that this righteousness is based on Him and not you, is a must to confidently wear this breastplate. We have to understand that. It's based off Him, not on us, and He chose to give it to us. You see, because now the burden is off of us. Our ability to keep the, the things of God had nothing to do with this righteousness that was bestowed upon us. It was in contrary to that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. 
says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we are his representative. In, in the Hebrew, it would be, we are his imagers. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who did this talk about? Christ. Didn't talk about you. He, they're just begging you. Receive this. Pleading. Through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Whose behalf? It wasn't even on their behalf. It was on Christ's behalf. Receive the things that Christ has done. It's Christ's work that makes us righteous. This is pretty clear. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that one, don't we? We use it as an excuse. That's our crutch. Oh, all have sinned, fallen short. I'm one of them. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be made and the might be just and the justifier the one who has has faith in Jesus god is given righteousness fully to all who believe it's not a partial it's not a little bit here a little bit there he's fully given it to all who believe and we're going to come back to that passage romans 5 and 17 says this for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one jesus christ right who, who is is it a gift it's a gift who's the one jesus christ and we know the, the context of these verses because we've heard them a thousand times. But the problem is, is we hear this stuff often we don't take it in. We don't let it sink into what it's really telling us. And so we've got Romans 10, 17, and this is what this says. This is a very famous passage. You guys have heard this and probably repeated it. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, right? Heard it time and time again. I've heard preachers get up, faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing the Word of God. And they say it over and over and over again. But we all know somebody who's heard and heard and heard and still it hasn't sunk in. What we've got to understand is the context of this entire chapter is present day Israel and how they rejected the Gospel. Present day Israel, present day when it was written, not present day specifically today. It's the rejection of the gospel. And he's talking about how can they hear if no one preaches? And it goes into all of that stuff. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? All these questions are being laid out. But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Right? We know that. But here's the key. One of my favorite instructors when we went to Bible school was a guy named Doug Jones. He said this, it revolutionized my thinking. It was mind-blowing. It was one of those events that was so simple. It's like, why didn't I think of this? But here's what he said. Faith comes by hearing and accepting what you hear as truth. Right? I talked about this this morning. How big truth is to this whole thing because if you hear something and you don't believe it then it doesn't sink into your heart it doesn't change who you are if you hear, you hear the message of the gospel and you don't believe that jesus even lived on this earth we got problems 
Because you're never just going to accept it. If you don't believe that you are wallowing and dying in your sins, then why would you think there would need a propitiation for them? Because you're just good the way you are. If all believers have been made righteous and are supposed to reign in life like kings, then why do so many believers live defeated lives? Simple answer. Their minds have not been renewed to the Word of God. They've heard the Word. but They haven't accepted it as truth because when you accept the Word of God as truth, then everything that's in it is believable. I say that if you can, if you can accept Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, if you can accept that as truth, then everything that comes after it is at least possible. But we reject Genesis 1.1. Or we accept Genesis 1.1, but we reject some of the other parts of it. Oh yeah, Jesus came and died for my sin, I'm good. But the whole part about I'm supposed to be walking in health just doesn't make sense to me. But I got a good doctor, so he's good. Nothing wrong with doctors. We th- we're thankful for doctors and the medication and all this other stuff. But we don't take God at His word. It comes down to money. I mean, this is another example. And again, nothing I'm ever doing is trying to, or saying, I should say, is trying to just get more money out of people because that's really not my goal. It's the changing of the heart. It's the changing of the guards inside of life. Because when everything you have, including your money, belongs to God, then suddenly your need for it changes. Your desires for it changes. There was a time in my life where I chased money and I chased it often. And, and I really was puffed up unknowingly to myself because I really thought I was in the 100% perfect will of God because things were going well. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later when I realized that that was keeping me from the greater things that God had for me because things were going well. I was trusting on the good part instead of the God part. It's accepting what you hear as truth. 1 John 5, starting in verse 13, says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And that's the key, that's the caveat. That you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and that's the key, according to His will. But this confidence word, it's the Greek word parisia, if I'm saying that right. I don't speak fluid Greek, so sometimes I'm making up the pronunciations. But it means boldness or openness. It's the picture of a person who is exceptionally open and bold in how they approach situations. We might almost call it arrogance. And we know people like that when it comes to the things of God. Again, we talk about the difference that we know people who are defeated constantly. Everything's negative. Nothing good ever happens. And then you got this confident over here. What's the difference? These folks have accepted what God said is truth. And if he said it, he's going to figure it out. It's like Abraham. Abraham was given a son. You remember his name? It's a good name, isn't it? Good name. Everybody should name their, their kid that. But anyhow... His name was Isaac, and God made promise in that he was going to have offspring. And God says, Abraham, I want you to go, and I want you to go up there, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Most of us would be like, I'm sorry, get thee behind me, this cannot be God. But Abraham knew the voice of God, and it wasn't just the voice. You've got to look back and look closely. God appeared to Abraham multiple times physically. This wasn't just some abstract voice he was hearing. This was a physical appearance many times back then. 
But what was Abraham's faith in? He knew that even if he went through with this, because of the promises that God had made about the life of Isaac, that even if I kill my son, God's going to raise him up. He has to, because he made promises. That's the confidence. We might say it's fully persuaded. We keep using that word around here lately, but you're going to hear it a lot. You have to be fully persuaded that the Word of God is truly the Word of God and that He will do the things that He says He will do. An attitude of righteousness will profoundly affect your prayer life. When you are confident that you are right with God, your prayers become easier. Why? We enter boldly into the throne room of grace. Nothing keeps us back. Even when we miss it, we know that repentance is there and forgiveness is there and that we've been washed clean by the blood of God. And so that's one side of the breastplate, the, the righteousness as an offensive weapon. But what about as a defensive weapon? Because it does do both. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And I think it's interesting. What is a robe? Robe covers all the way down. It's like this righteousness covers you from head to foot. It goes all the way down. It's, it's every part of you. There's nothing unrighteous about you because I've made you righteous. Isaiah 51 and verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. The question is, is first of all, you who know my righteousness, who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to everybody who belonged, the, the nation of Israel specifically in this area, because they worshipped Yahweh. Other nations worshipped other gods, but they worshipped the one true God. And he goes through, so he's talking specifically to them. He's basically, don't worry about these other people. Don't be afraid of them. They're going to be destroyed. And so, as we look at this righteousness, this understanding, I want to show you something that kind of came to me in the last couple of weeks um, that I think is very powerful. And we're going to go through and we're going to look at some different people in the life of God. And I want you to notice some similarities of the things that were going on. First, let's talk about Adam. Okay? Obviously, his role and identity is the first man. There's no question about that. He was the firstborn, if you will. But how was Adam cast in the biblical story? Well, he was the Son of God, literally. I mean, in, in one sense, because God made him, created him specifically, and from there, creation was um, in our wheelhouse, if you will. We have the ability to do that. As son of the king, he was royalty. He was his father's designated ruler in Eden. There was a, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to you know, work the garden. I want you to do all this stuff. He was put in the garden to work the land. Once he was expelled from the garden, he was displaced from God's kingdom to suffer. Because working the garden became difficult all of a sudden. It was working the earth, uh, uh, the thorns and the thistle. It talks about all of that kind of stuff. And Adam lost his earthly immortality. Now death has entered the world. And he died, but Scripture is very careful to note that his lineage would live on, most precariously through Noah and all the way to Abraham and then Israel and then, of course, Jesus. You see the descent that goes on, but his eternal life is guaranteed by God's power. 
his bodily return to the new Eden depends completely on the resurrection of Christ, who was the firstborn from the dead. So you see these different things that God said. This is who Adam is. Well, let's look at another. Let's look at the nation of Israel. Israel, primarily, they trace their heritage back to Adam. But God calls the nation his son. I think that's interesting. How do you call a nation a son? And Israel is not only the light to the nations, but God intended Israel to rule over the nations. And you'll see different scripture passages up there that you can write down and go back and look at. And this only makes sense given the fact that God is the ruler of the nations and Israel is his son. It kind of coincides together. Israel is referred to as God's servant. And like Adam, Israel's transgression led to exile from the place where the divine presence resided, just based off of what they did. The result of this suffering was under foreign powers and kings and things like that. But eventually, Israel is exiled to the point and ceases to exist as a nation. But the prophets foretold Israel's resurrection, which was most vividly through the dry bones thing in Ezekiel 37. The nation is reborn after the exile in the form of returning inhabitants of Judah from Babylon. They see it coming back. Again, this was all prophesied, but look at the language. You see some consistency there. So let's look at the life of Moses. Moses was the son of Abraham, and therefore he was a son of God. His status was special since he was God's appointed deliverer. He was basically the ruler of the nation of Israel. God tells him that he will be as God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim, to Pharaoh and to his Moses brother Aaron. Because of the divine power that flowed through him, he would come to be seen by the Israelites as this quasi-divine figure, though he was just a man. But they looked at him differently because the Spirit of God was upon Moses and he did all of these miracles and stuff. Moses is called the servant of God. He suffers for a sin and is prohibited from entering the promised land, though God permits him to see it from a distance just before his death. The transfiguration informs us that Moses lived on with God, but as with everyone, his resurrection in a new Eden was contingent on one who was to come. And we all know who that one is. So we've got Adam, and we've got Israel, and we've got Moses, but what about the, the kingship, the Davidic line leading to the Messiah? In the Davidic covenant, God promised David, David an everlasting dynastic succession. And the fulfillment of this promise would fail in the Old Testament era due to the death of Israel in exile. Israel's resurrection through Judah, which was the tribe of David, would keep this promise alive. The fulfillment of the promise would be inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus. But the question we ask is, how do the patterns emerge in Israelite kingship and the messianic son of David? Well, let's look at this. David was an earthly son of God. But the kings of David's line were also called son of God in an act of anointed adoption specific to the enthroned king. There's wording there. Look in Psalms 2. The king was God's anointed descendant of Judah. His ruling representative among all his earthly children. The kingship carried with it this quasi-divine aspect again. Psalm 45 and verse 6 and 7. I don't have that one up there. But that's where it talks about it. And then Psalm 89 and 27, it casts the throne of David as the most high among all the nations. King David was God's servant, as were these other godly kings. One particular branch from the tribe of Judah in David's line would be the individual servant God would use to bring salvation to Israel. And just like Israel, this individual servant would suffer and die, but yet live to see his offspring, a multitude made righteous, 
by his service. You ever want to see a very fascinating passage talking about the Messiah coming, go read Daniel 7. It's incredible. So we see all these things leading up to the Messiah, but what does that have to do with us? Well, let's look at the language. First of all, we are the sons of God. You see that in Galatians 3 and 26. For you are all through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? We are kings, Revelations 1.5. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are kings, but we are also His servants, 2 Corinthians 6, 3 and 4. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And that's just the first half of that verse. And it goes even beyond that. I mean, you think about it because he says you're no longer servants, but you are a friend. You're, you're now sons of God. It goes even beyond that language. But in one sense, we are the servants of God because we set ourselves apart to do the, His work. Another thing that happens sometimes is we suffer for God. Romans 5 and 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Another one, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What's the moral of the story in all this? Yes, we may suffer, but nothing compares to the glory of God. It's worth suffering for. In one sense, we are also exiles. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just like Israel was exiled, they were separated. God, right after the, the Tower of Babel, God takes apart a nation through Abraham and sets them aside. It's the same thing. He's pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. And in one sense, we are exiled, only this time it's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21, We will die, but we will also be resurrected. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. So I've got a little chart to put up there for you, and I hope that you've picked up on the language here. But you see the plan of the Messiah all the way through. How every one of them, all that we talked about, and we could have done more, we could have done a bunch more, but I tried to keep it simple, tried to keep it short, that we were all sons of God, starting with Adam all the way to this point, that we're all set aside as rulers or kings, that we're all servants of the Most High, but yet we will suffer on this earth, and we will face exile and death, but we will live on and be resurrected, and made alive in Christ to be resurrected at some point by Him. The pattern of righteousness is laid out throughout the entire Bible. And too often we read it quickly or we just go back to this story and we don't connect the dots inside of it. And the bottom line when it comes to righteousness is this. You are 
what He said that you are. If He said you're a king, then you're a king. If He calls you a son, then you're a son. If He said that you'll be made alive in Christ, then you are made alive in Christ. If Jesus calls you righteous, it's not a matter of am I righteous, I am righteous. We should wear it proudly. We should wear it boldly. We should throw our shoulders back knowing the king of this world has given you the authority goes back to that language. You guys see how all of these pieces connect from the very beginning. God wasn't taken aback. Oh my goodness, Adam sinned. What do we do? I don't know. He knew what to do. He knew it was going to happen. He had a plan. And you see it all the way through getting to us. Why are we righteous? Why were they righteous? Because God said it. That's it. It's that simple. It's not that I can earn it. It's because He said it. So I want everybody to flip over to Romans 3 real quick. If you've got your Bibles, Romans 3. We already read this once, but I want you to look at it again. We're going to read it a little slower this time. Romans 3, and we're going to start at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, whose righteousness? God's righteousness, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. How do we get righteousness? Faith in Jesus Christ. For who? All. Not some. All who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If one person is just, and he is the justifier, what makes you righteous? He does. Not you. You see, it's His righteousness given to all who have faith. Not some. We're the ones that put distinctions in here and make it complicated. We complicate the gospel all the time. It's almost like we do everything we can to help people keep from getting saved. Because we get in the way. We give somebody that gives their life to Christ and we tell them, you come to Jesus just as you are. Your past doesn't matter. I don't care if you're strung out on drugs. I don't care if you are a prostitute. And you, it doesn't make a lick of difference. You come to Jesus as, just as you are. And so they do. And they receive forgiveness of their sins. And then next week they come in and they're talking about a struggle that they're having. Oh, you can't be like that. You've got to stop. You need to go clean yourself up. All of a sudden the righteousness is on their part. Why? Because we get in the way. It's God's. It's His righteousness given to us as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved. It's by grace, His grace, and it's through faith in Jesus. We can't boast on it. We can't brag about it. It's like, it's almost as if God said, I'm giving you all of this armor. Here's your part to play in it. Put it on. That's it. Put it on. But that sounds too simple. We've got to complicate it. We've got to have marathon prayer services to do spiritual warfare. We've got to rent tall buildings to get up into the high places so we can deal with them right on their own turf. Right? We complicate the process. God's like, hey, here's some armor. Put it on. It'll take care of your problems. Maybe if you just trust in me. 
Maybe if you just allow me to be God. Maybe if you just quit getting in the way. Let me do what I do. And so, before we close, I've got a worship song, and I want you to really focus on the lyrics here. And as you sing them, I want you to cry out to God here, because they're very powerful, and the expression of who we are in Christ. Let's stand up, Daniel, if you will, and let's worship. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child of God. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with song of deliverance from my enemy till all my fear sing that again you unravel you unravel me with a melody and you surround me with
slave to fear? Why are we no longer a slave to sin? Why are we no longer a slave to the things of this world? It's because we're a child of God. Why are we a child of God? Because He said that we are. What makes us His sons or daughters? He does. What makes us righteous? He does. What part do we play in it? We simply believe. We hear the word and we accept what we hear as truth. And we allow that truth to sink in our hearts and take root in our heart and change our life from everlasting to everlasting because we are fully persuaded that God is able to do the things that He said that He would do. And not just that He's able to do them, but that He will do them. If God said you're righteous, then stop saying you're not. If God says you're free from bondage, then stop allowing yourself to be put back into bondage. If God said that you're free from sickness, then why do we walk around defeated foes? I mean, this is, this is insane. We've got to stop allowing the enemy to let us walk around as if we were defeated. As if we were this lesser being. Because He said that we are the sons of God. We are sons of the Most High King. Let's pray. Father, we worship You. Holy Spirit, this Word. Put it in our hearts. Allow it to sink in. Allow it to take root and grow as we continue to walk with You that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Made that way through faith in the Most High King. Faith in the One who is able to pay the penalty of sin and death. The One and only who can set us free from the bondage in which we live in. That righteousness was received freely as a gift from you not based on works and our abilities not based on the things that we think that we bring to the table but based solely upon receiving the free gift of grace from you Lord that you said we are righteous that you have set us apart for your work to do your will to do your plan father today we receive that Holy Spirit I just ask that you move in our hearts move in our lives Show us the areas that we need to change to rely fully on You. To give everything we have to You to rely fully upon Your ability. Because we are convinced that You can do what You said that You will do. Father, above all, I pray that we become useful. I pray that we, we make a difference in this world. I pray that we do it with the heart that You've given us, Lord. Because it breaks our heart to see somebody separated from You. And Lord, I just ask You for opportunities to portray this truth in the lives of those that we live with, those that we work with, those that we're around, the neighbors, Lord, wherever, wherever we are, that we are the light that shines in a dark place. That we are the church. That we are a city on a hill. That we are set apart by You for Your glory, for Your work, Lord. And we dedicate our hearts and lives to You for service for You. To be used by You for all that You have. Father, it's, this is not a, a religion based off of what we can do. But it's based off of what You have done. It's based off of the promises that You've made. 
Father, we glorify you. We are no longer slaves, but we are your children. Lord, we thank you. And we worship you. We lift your holy name above all names. We put it first in our lives, first in our words, first in our thoughts. We praise and worship your holy name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.